Support for Father David Abernethy and his ministry at the Pittsburgh Oratory of St. Philip Neri comes entirely from the donations of community members and listeners like you. The creation of future groups and podcast episodes depends on your commitment and generosity. We humbly ask that you consider a monthly gift of $10 to the Pittsburgh Oratory in support of Father David and his work. To make this or any gift, please visit www.thepittsburghoratory.org, click the Donate button, and write Father David in the notes section. You can also make a recurring or one-time donation directly through Podbean. Your commitment and ministry-sustaining support are greatly appreciated. God bless you, and enjoy the podcast. is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Okay, welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Evergatinos, and we're picking up once again with the first volume, and we're on Hypothesis 18, and tonight we're starting on page 136 at the very bottom of the page, number nine. And if you remember, we had been uh, discussing and reflecting upon uh, the importance of spending time with those who are virtuous people and always seeking the counsel from those who have an experiential knowledge of the spiritual life and who can, again, speak to us from that experience, where it's not just within the mind, but something that they've come to experience over the course of time and long, long experience. And, uh, And so we'll hear again and again here, not just how important it is, but how highly it was valued among the Desert Fathers, among so many different things. Uh, even among, even greater than spending one's time in oneself, which we've heard over and over again, how important it was to maintain and protect that solitude. The one thing that one would leave that solitude for would be the guidance of one of the, one of the elders. And as we'll hear from some of the stories, the willingness that the monks at times had to go and the great lengths that they would go to in order to have contact with the elders. So again, we're on number nine at the very bottom of the page, 136. Abba Paphnutius said that as long as the elders were alive, he would visit them twice a month. Bissau was 12 miles distant from them. During these visits, he would confess his thoughts. In response, they would always tell him the same thing. Wherever you may go, Paphnutius, take no thought of yourself and you will find peace. And so the, the first thing that st- stands out, I think, is, again, the, the great lengths that he was willing to go, 12 miles you know, by foot in order uh, a couple times a month to speak with these elders and, uh, and also to, to reveal one's thoughts, to confess one's thoughts. We'll find this very often within the writings uh, of the fathers of how important this is, that they would uh, freely lay before the elders, everything that would go through their mind, every thought that they would have, uh, desiring above all to expose it to the light in order that the elder might be able to offer uh, some counsel, uh, some path that might offer healing or some word of hope uh, that he would speak to them 
or some ascetic practice that they might embrace. And uh, we certainly have that, I think, within the confessional. Uh, and yet, unfortunately, in our day, you know, perhaps we don't have the elders and uh, that were in abundance within the desert. Uh, and so it's very difficult to, to find one that we would feel confident within in terms of it, expressing all of our thoughts to perhaps uh, outside of the confessional. Um, but this was certainly a big part of their life. And their counsel to him was take no thought of yourself and you will find peace. Uh, again, it's, you know, when the ego is dethroned and Christ is enthroned appropriately, when our focus remains upon him and when we begin to live in Christ more and more is when a kind of enduring peace comes to us. It's not something that we create and it's not something we create even through the ascetical life itself. It is a gift and that it comes through participating in the life of Christ. And so their counsel to him is to, you know, pay no thought to oneself. Don't agonize uh, about one, what one has or what, what one does not have, but rather keep your focus upon God. And there's where you will find this enduring peace. And that's good counsel. You know, I think in our own day, uh, we're taught very early on to have the focus upon the self and the importance of self-esteem. And uh, I think when we look to the spiritual life, though, we begin to find that true freedom, you know, comes not from our demanding it or our striving for it, but rather in and through the person of Christ and in and through obedience to the commandments, that this is where a genuine, and again, an everlasting kind of uh, peace comes to us and freedom comes to us. And um, we can live, as we've often talked about, the spiritual life in a very willful fashion. And uh, this comes, you know, we're coming up on the holy season of Lent. Some of you have already entered into it and, uh, and, uh, this is a good time, I think, for us to really uh, think hard on, you know, what, what it is that we are going to embrace during this holy season, and not simply as, you know, a test of endurance, but we really want, I think, to reflect upon all the things that we've been reading, whether from the Evergatinos or St. Theophan, or what we'll be reflecting upon with St. John Climacus, especially, how it is that we might seek this freedom. Uh, within Christ, and in particular through uh, this path of obedience, which is actually the next hypothesis. So uh, we're really poised, I think, here at the beginning of Lent uh, to see what's at the heart of the spiritual life and what we should be uh, attentive to. Number 10, it is said of an elder that for 70 weeks he ate only once a week. During this period, he asked God to show him the meaning of a phrase of Holy Scripture. But God would not reveal it to him. He said to himself, therefore, I've expended so much effort and accomplished nothing. I will go to my brother and ask him, as he was closing the door of his cell so that he could go to his brother, an angel of the Lord was sent to him. He said to the monk, the 70 weeks during which you fasted did not reach God. But when you humbled yourself and thought to visit your brother, then God sent me to you that I might show you the meaning of the saying about which you asked. 
And so having informed the monk about all the things he had asked, the angel departed. So this is in line with, I think, what we're just reflecting upon here, that it's not through our own ascetical practices, uh, especially when they're embraced in a willful way, uh, and when they have the origin so deeply rooted in the self, that here he embraces this very strict practice of fasting for 70 weeks uh, in order that he might come to a certain understanding of a scripture passage. And yet during that whole time, there's no greater insight that comes to him. And part of it is the, the lack of humility, the prideful embrace of the ascetic practice with the expectation that in and through this, uh, almost in a, a kind of magical way that the meaning of that passage would come forward to him, that there is a greater value uh, that in his humility when he finally acknowledges that he cannot bring this about through even his strict fasting, but rather humbles himself to ask another, to seek counsel of another, that the truth is opened up to him in this case via an angel. But I think what the point of this hypothesis is pointing to is that there is greater value in seeking the counsel of others, that we never uh, leave that position of learning or should ever feel that we've reached a, a level of sanctity or a virtue where we don't need to seek the counsel of others, that we're beyond spiritual direction or we're beyond the need uh, for spiritual counsel in any way. And, and along with this, that, uh, that we, we can't think that we have the capacity simply through the ascetical practices to force this kind of insight. You know, it, that so much within the spiritual life is given as gift, as one humbles oneself before God. And if there's any tinge of pride within what we are doing, that that will distort our vision or keep us from hearing the truth. It's only as with this individual when we let go of those illusions and see our need, our poverty, that the, the truth opens up before us. This is good to understand, I think, prior to going to seminary. Uh, and I've often voiced my beef uh, with, uh, formation in that regard, because I think it's often absent some of the, this wisdom of the fathers. Um, seminary, there should be something radically different about seminary. And, you know, it's not simply an academic degree that one is seeking, that there's formation to serve the church. Uh, and uh, what is the value of, of forming, you know, men who intellectually can find their way through you know, complicated texts, but might not have the humility to be able to receive the insights uh, that God desires them to have. And so it's very important that, you know, seminary formation uh, is in line, I think, with what we find within the spiritual tradition. And not simply, you know, I think there are no standards that are put together, you know, whether it's by bishop conferences or uh, in order to meet uh, the standards necessary for certification, for offering certain degrees. And yet again, those can be sort of contrived. You know, the evaluations that take place in, in that context, the kinds of courses that are offered, the things that are emphasized, but not necessarily, again, 
focusing enough upon the importance of the ascetic life uh, and the formation of the mind and the heart uh, as one approaches uh, the things of God and, and, and approaches the responsibility of preaching the gospel. Any thoughts so far on these first two paragraphs? So humility is key. From Abba Mark, a man advises his neighbor in accordance with what his neighbor knows. Correspondingly, God acts on one who hears him according to the degree of his faith. A man of forbearance becomes wise, just as does he who is careful to listen to words of wisdom. Do not refuse to learn, even if you are very wise, for the providence of God avails more than our wisdom. That there are things that God uh, brings about through his providence to guide us along the path of truth and along the truths that are necessary for our sanctification and our salvation. And so it is more important that one would have the gift of faith or the gift of humility, that always be open to, to learning from, from others and not trusting simply what has been gained over the course of years or through one's, one's study, that uh, God's ways are so high above our ways, and we must never forget that. And uh, there are paths of God that will lead us upon that only he can show us and that only can be revealed to us in ways that perhaps we would not expect or choose for ourselves. Um, and this is the danger, I think, with the ascetic life, uh, again, where it can be something that's willful, that we uh, approach certain disciplines and take them up in a self-serving kind of way, desirous, I think, of having maybe more of an image of ourselves uh, as the ascetic. And I think when, on Ash Wednesday in the West, it's always curious, the, the gospel that they give us to read, uh, you know, if you're fasting, wash your face, and we talked a little bit about this last night, uh, but Christ, you know, constantly saying that if certain ascetical practices are embraced, uh, whether it's prayer, fasting, or almsgiving, uh, if all those are embraced in order to be seen, rather than in a hidden fashion where God alone sees them, then the person, he says, has their reward, their payment in full is the, the meaning of it. So what they get through the ascetical practice is uh, that this, others would see them as being abstemious or, uh, uh, you know, that they're generous with their, their goods or others would see them as holy or as prayerful. But that is their reward, he says, that is their payment in full. And likewise, you know, I think in the spiritual life, we can have this approach to spiritual disciplines where the ego is too much a part of them rather than uh, they're arising out of our conversations with our confessor or, or spiritual director. And so we do well to, to take the counsel here of Abba Mark. Anthony. Uh, I might be very wrong about this, but I believe it was a historical accident in a way that made us Roman Catholics take part in the ashes. 
I don't remember if it was a French bishop in like the 600s or it might have been uh, during the Black Plague. I listened to historian Charles Coulomb and it seems like our Roman Catholic spirituality was strongly marked by the Black Plague experience. That's why, for example, a lot of our masses are low masses because of a historical accident apparently that wiped out choirs and a lot of joy in that period. Anyway, for what it's worth, I think that's the reason why. Right. Yeah. And, you know, we see even in certain parts of the world, you know, that they don't put the ashes on the forehead and they don't make the, put a sign of the cross that they put the ashes on top of the head, uh, like within the hair even. And so, uh, which makes again, a little bit more sense rather than sort of marking oneself in a very public fashion in this way. And so, you know, I think with the kind of wisdom the church gives us that gospel on that day, precisely that we might not fall into that trap as we begin, a, you know, 40 day discipline. He who wishes to take up the cross and follow Christ must before acquiring any other knowledge or learning, attend to the constant examination of his thoughts and take care for his soul's salvation, eagerly consulting with those servants of God who are of like mind and spirit, who fight the same fight, so that he will not be in danger of walking without a bright lamp in the darkness, ignorant of where he is going and how he will get there. For he who walks according to his desires, without knowledge of the gospel and discretion, without guidance of another, stumbles frequently and falls into the many pits and traps of the evil one. The same falls prey to diverse deceptions, toiling greatly, but falling into various dangers, not knowing what will be his end. And I wrote one thing in the column next to this was simply yes, that, uh, you know, that when we are, when we do walk without counsel, it is as if we are walking uh, in the dark, and also if we aren't seeking counsel for, uh, from those who have the same desire and are seeking the same ends, it is like the blind leading the blind. And it's why I think we find emphasized so much here, uh, spending time with those who are virtuous, spending time with those who have this deep love and desire for God, and who seek this purity of heart. It is from them that we would want to learn uh, what it is that we must do to, to walk that path. And to uh, act outside of that is foolhardy, that inevitably one is going either to fall into certain uh, traps or uh, fall to the devices of the evil one. And so this watchfulness of thought that he emphasizes here constant examination of thoughts to take care of for one's soul salvation is it comes back again and again as really the primary thing that we are to strive for in this spiritual battle because so often temptation comes to us in the form of thought that the spiritual battle is often psychological and so takes place on the level of thought of emotion imagination and so having this kind of watchfulness uh, uh, of heart and watchfulness of our thoughts becomes essential for us. And this is why even the wisest of person can't trust in, in his own wisdom when it comes to uh, s s 
spiritual matters and the path that he's taking. Uh, again, no matter how much experience he might have, that our own will uh, can creep in. Again, our own ego can creep in where we begin to pursue things that are feeding our own sensibilities or what we desire rather than what God wills. And it becomes more and more difficult, especially as he mentions here, you know, if there is this desire to take up the cross and follow Christ, whenever we do meet with trials, that often we will want to take a path that allows us to escape them. You know, we, we rarely choose the cross that is given to us. And we always have in mind a cross that we would rather be carrying. And so the moment that we begin to experience that, uh, we begin to look for the, the door that leads out of the room, if you will. And, uh, and so even the most experienced person is going to shrink back in a defensive posture. And, you know, we aren't beyond our rationalizations. And so we can come up with all kinds of spiritual reasons why another path would be more suitable for us. You know, I'm more reserved and I like, you know, the silence. And so I, I should go off and become, you know, a hermit. And that might very well be true. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, but it's not necessarily what God desires. You know, my personal inclination might very easily lead me along that path. But is it the will of God? And uh, I think there's also an illusion that somehow that would be the easier path. You know, I think even the person who's most inclined to solitude would, would find the kind of solitude uh, that, you know, the hermit embraces to be something much different than he imagines in his own mind. That often the battle is much more fierce there. And it's, as we'll hear in some of the uh, pages to come, that uh, one would not rush into the sol solitary life that uh, it's the most dangerous without, especially if one does not have the counsel. And this is why we see these, these men willing to go 12 miles, uh, you know, a number of times a month to get the counsel of these elders, because to live alone and to fall when one does not have anyone around to lift you up can be a very dangerous experience. One can fall into despair or something far worse you know there you hear all these stories of monks thinking that you know angels will catch them if they indeed do throw themselves off of a cliff and they end up killing themselves or fasting to such an extreme you know excess that they end up hurting themselves okay anything so far on this paragraph all right Indeed, many have endured great toils and numberless ascetic feats and have suffered much ill treatment and many hardships for God. Despite this, however, their self-styled life, lack of discretion and neglect of what was best for their neighbor have caused all of their labors to be worthless and in the end, a waste of effort. To avoid this danger, therefore, it is good for a man to live with another, or at least to make an effort to keep the company of knowledgeable people and to try not to walk in darkness, associating of necessity if one lacks the lamp of true knowledge with someone who possesses that lamp. Thus he avoids the danger of falling into traps and snares or succumbing to spiritual beasts which seek their sustenance in the dark and which grab and tear to pieces those who walk in this darkness without the intelligible lamp of the divine logos. 
So a self-styled asceticism. Uh, I think we live in a, a day and age where that's pretty much everybody, a self-styled asceticism that I think, uh, especially in the West, uh, that there is a kind of pick and choose mentality uh, in terms of what, again, is attractive, uh, what stimulates the imagination or, enthu or enthusiasm. And I'm, you know, often a little concerned at times where things are made very simple or there are uh, like programs put forward uh, that involve the ascetical life. And uh, I don't believe in sort of this programmatic approach to, to very many things because individuals rarely fit into uh, such a neat uh, construct. And, uh, and so for everyone to practice the same form of asceticism, uh, again, outside of the context of one's spiritual director or confessor can be a dangerous thing, or at best, I think, a kind of exercise in endurance, but not necessarily be what the, the person needs. It can be very much what uh, is said here, a self-styled asceticism. And in the end, this, this might be a waste of effort, not really uh, strengthening oneself or others, and certainly not being accord with the will of God. It might even put us uh, in harm's way, that we aren't listening to the word of God, but we are rather following the, the, the designs and this spirit of the evil one. And so find ourselves walking down a path where we end up being torn to pieces, uh, at least on a spiritual level, uh, simply because we are, are really uh, not listening to God and don't have God at the, the center of our spiritual life. And we, we've talked about this many times before about, you know, that religious people aren't beyond their delusions. In fact, the delusions that we have are often the deepest and the most dangerous. And so again and again, the counsel that we find here is really not to trust oneself at all. And the more convicted we are about our view of things and the more ferociously that we cling to it, we're probably in, in grave air. And, uh, you know, we're taught in our day and age to put things forward so forcefully and to, to exalt our own will, our own judgment, our own opinion, that it's not a, you know, a great jump to want to do that with the spiritual life as well. And in our relationship with God to, again, to enthrone our own judgment rather than to humbly listen to God and to allow ourselves to be guided and directed upon the path that he desires. Anthony. But, but Father, there's gotta be a difference between what you just described to us and the, the chronic crippling self-doubt of Calvinism, that there is no reason, you are completely dead in your sins, you cannot trust yourself. I've seen this go nuts. And it's a lot of my life has been wanting to be firmly within sanity, logic and reason. Can you show us the boundaries of proper self-doubt and, and wicked self-doubt, please? Right. Well, you know, I think what we reviewed last night in particular 
the ascetic podvig of living a modern life, laid it out really beautifully. I think Theophan and uh, St. John Kronstadt we looked at, you know, both lay it out uh, with a great clarity that we, we live out our, our spiritual life in the context of the church, first of all, the body of Christ, you know, not as uh, simply as individuals and not in accord with our own freedom that we insist upon, but rather participation in the freedom of life in Christ, the life of grace. And so uh, tied to intimately to that is the, the sacramental life that we are guided, you know, into the, the mystery of God's life, but also his will for us in and through participating in what he has given to us precisely to strengthen us and heal us. Uh, all the things that he's given to us to heal the blind spots, the hard spots, and to wipe off the rough edges, if you will, the sacramental life, confession, Holy Communion, uh, that he's given us the scriptures uh, uh, and the, the uh, the fathers of the church, as well as, as spiritual guides, what is being put before us here as well. But what we found emphasized last night in particular was this participation in the life of the church. And I think what, what leads us into a kind of danger, whether it's this Calvinist, as you said, uh, vision of Christianity, uh, or this radical individualism that we find even you know, among Catholics, uh, is this loss of this sense of being part of, of the body, that we don't act simply in accord uh, of our own will or for ourselves. And so even in our spiritual life, we have to see ourselves in, involved in this radical solidarity with the other. And not only, and by the other, I don't mean simply Christ, but one another. And that in being faithful and growing in grace, we are strengthening the body. And likewise, when we turn away from the will of God, from his commandments, uh, and this was also put forward last night too, the commandments, the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, these are all the ways that we examine our thoughts, our motives, uh, and begin to discern whether or not they are in accord with the mind of Christ and also in accord with the mind of the church. And, uh, and so it's not a kind of quietism that we're, we're called to, uh, but rather you know, an understanding of our, ourselves as being led and directed by the spirit of God. And it's the spirit of humility in particular that keeps us along the, the right path, that we see the truth about ourselves and the, the weakness of our will, that even when we do see the truth, we often don't embrace that truth, but the opposite, that we often have hold contradictory views and desires within ourselves, or that we have that darkened intellect. You know, the eye, the heart, the eye, the, the, the soul has been darkened by our passions. And so we do not see the truth. And, uh, and it's, so it's through all of these means, the, the sacramental life, the, the, the scriptures, the church as a whole, that we are guided along that path. And so it's radically con contradicts, it radically contradicts a kind of individuality that especially we see within the West. 
And I think it is our breakdown of seeing Christianity as an ascetic religion, ascetical religion that prevents us from uh, seeing this, of, you know, that we lack this capacity of discernment because we haven't throughout the whole course of our life exercised our faith and the way that we exercise our faculties or aptitudes in all these different areas of our life. We will go to great lengths to develop them. But when it comes to our faith life and our relationship with God and our struggle with the passions and our seeking to grow in virtue, we leave it to, you know, personal inspiration or, you know, this hope that somehow haphazardly we will find, find our way along the path to God. And so, you know, and parents have often, you know, I think our society is such that, you know, it's with the most important thing in our life, all of a sudden they want to let their children make their, up their own mind when they come of age. And you think, how nonsensical is that? You know, parents will st spend a fortune to send them to the best schools or, you know, to, you know, training camps for athletics or, you know, for music or, or get them tutoring, you know, for, for the academic life. But when it comes to the spiritual life, that, you know, all, all that is out at the margins, you know, placed into the hand, into the hand sometimes of a CCD teacher who doesn't know up from down or the, you know, the, the, the basics of the faith, willing to entrust them things that are most important uh, to another. And, you know, I'm not trying to be flippant there, but I've had the experience of enough Catholic schools and Catholic teachers and CCD programs to know that they are sorely lacking. And the, and the fact that they are so, sorely lacking almost across the board shows that we don't care. You know, that, we, that this isn't something that we love and desire with all of our hearts. Okay, a couple of hands went up there. Uh, Daniel Allen, I think, first, and then it was Eric. Um, would it be, do you think it would be kind of correct to also say that maybe a difference between like a wicked self-doubt, Calvinistic or something versus a healthy self-doubt is also like that it's like, I guess my, my, my uh, thoughts went right to you brought up uh, St. Philip Neri often would say, what was it exactly like, uh, be with me today, Lord, for, for today I will betray you or something. Yeah. And it's not that he like started his day with the express intent to do so, mm -hmm. but it was a, it was more of us. It was a, a healthy self-doubt and understanding and a realization that, you know, or, or even like the there before, there but for the grace of god go i right like an inability to save save oneself and an inability to like and not only an inability to do that like an inability to respond to god um in perfect love and in, in an immense ability where it's almost so just easy to to do the exact opposite and but then but then the, what would maybe make that healthy would be to also keep in mind that like God already knows that, right? And he did, despite that fact, still call you into being 
-hmm. and and what's difficult for you is very easy for him you know like like a counterbalance to the thing like hey this is very this is actually pretty much from being honest impossible for me and it doesn't create the excuse i think the calvinism could where it's like well then what's the point because the point of it all becomes more of a um more of a like you know i wish it wasn't so hard for me or something like it is so hard but it's it's more like it's more like to do the little that you can to show like hey at least i made a little effort even though that effort is is still very small in the grand scheme of things yeah. well you know humility isn't you know this kind of self-hatred or contempt of ourselves as human beings in fact true humility uh, speaks of a deep relationship with god that we know that it's only by his love and being in that relationship of love that we are saved and we are guided along the path of truth and so to acknowledge and to have no illusions about our ability to save ourselves or to see all ends or to see the truth about ourselves or certain circumstances isn't to have this negative self-image so much as it is to have an honest and truthful view of things and we you know, aren't falling into a kind of despair there, but we are clinging to God all the more. And, you know, if we have a true desire for God, we're not going to see that as something hateful, this acknowledgement of our poverty, uh, you know, that it is, we're going to see it as something that draws us to, to his arms, more like a little child trusting in a parent than, you know, than someone who has, again, this sort of self-contempt, which often, you know, I think we imagine that is what humility is, when in fact it is simply this truthful living that we are dependent upon our Heavenly Father in every way. And that's why someone like St. Philip, you know, even with the wisdom that he had, could say that, you know, that receiving Holy Communion, he could pray to God, protect me, as you said, this day, for otherwise I will betray you. That he knew that left to his own means, or in his lesser moment, that he was capable of doing the same thing as Judas. And, you know, this wasn't a kind of false piety, but rather rooted in a deep self-knowledge, that unless he would cling to God at every moment, that he was capable of, of the worst. And that other saying that you mentioned was attributed to Philip Neri, there but the grace of God go I. That it's also the reason that we don't look upon another person with contempt, because we know that we're subject to all the, the temptations that they are, and that our path could equally go the same way if we become self-focused or we lose sight of God. And so we should look upon others with a pity born of compassion rather than uh, a prideful judgment. And, you know, so I've always found the Desert Fathers to be refreshingly honest in this regard. And I think they don't have this negative anthropology that is often put forward. I think they understood the human person very well. And they also have this language of desire, this language of love, that all of these ascetical practices are rooted in the desire for God and intimacy with him. And if they aren't guided by love, if they don't have love as their origin and their end, they are worthless. And uh, we talked a little bit about that last night, that love is what is to be the motivator for us in our spiritual practices. That's why we don't want to enter into Lent 
as simply this 40-day period of endurance. It's meant to be a springboard for us to enter into that relationship of love in a deeper and deeper fashion. And so we, we take up these disciplines where perhaps we faltered or grow, grown lukewarm, and we take them up in order that we might perpetuate what begins in Lent. It's a retreat in order that we might move forward with a greater zeal and longing for God. Not that we jump back to our same, you know, uh, kind, you know, behaviors of indulgence, you know, after Lent, thinking, you know, we've made some great gain in doing that, that somehow that 40 days of not eating sweets has an, an enduring value. You know, if it, if it had nothing to do with the love of God, then it's suspect. And I think this is what, you know, why they're emphasizing so much the, the importance of having the council of elders and seeking their, their guidance, because we can easily slip into that. That we don't see all ends, even when we're in circumstances where we do see things with a, a radical clarity, say a set of circumstances develop, and we're in the midst of it, and we see the truth of it, we might see the external truth of it with a perfect clarity, but we still don't know what is going on within the minds and the hearts of others. And we still don't know what God's will is going to be or what God is going to do in his providence with this set of circumstances and these individuals in order to work out their salvation. And so the moment we, that we try to control, we become calculating and try to control that set of circumstances, convinced that we see the truth. And even if we do see the truth, you know, in great measure, we're still going to fall into a pit because we're, we're at that point, we've given ourselves over to a kind of pride. We are not God. We do not see all ends. And when things get bad, we always want to take matters into our own hands, you know, to shape the circumstances in the way that we think is, is wise or beneficial. Eric. Yeah, so that, that's, a, that's, that's a good timing then to, uh, to bring up. You know, you were talking about that um, the uh, parents not leaving very important decisions to their children um, or to their education of their children to others um, too much on important matters of, of faith. Um, and religion. You also brought up about the, the giving up sweets for 40 days. I just thought I would bring up that, and you were also talking about the, the West and the asceticism in the West and how it's kind of gone out the window. Well, um, an interesting thing, I think, was the abandonment of the Lenten fasting discipline in 1966. I think this is probably one of the most disastrous things that's happened in, in Western Christianity um, with regards to asceticism, because, um, well, it's actually still, I don't know, maybe it's not strongly recommended still, but he did still say in 1966, Pope Paul VI, that it's strongly recommended that people fast mm -hmm. and not just from and I know you know this, but not just from sweets. I mean, like the, the actual fast, like what, 
you know, the church prescribes for Ash Wednesday. Um, so I was just wondering what, what did you, what do you think about that? And what do you think about, um, there are people who are trying to bring back the, um, well, follow what Pope Paul VI said, <laughs> you know, um, do the fasting, not just the snack, the fasting from snacks and things like that. Right. Well, you know, I think whatever led to, you know, that decision or what led to a breakdown of the practice of the ascetical life took place a long time before 19, uh, what was the exact date that you get? It was 60... 1966. 1966, that, you know, it probably happened centuries before that, you know, where there is this shift culturally to, you know, this focus upon the self, reason, on the individual, you know, this movement away from faith or, you know, this uh, God-centered view of, of the human person and of life. And gradually over the course of time, you know, I think what emerges is, again, the enthronement of the, the ego and the self and the, and the satisfying of one's own desires. And so the, you know, breakdown of the ascetical life likely, you know, began long before Vatican II. And I think, you know, even with the council, you, you know, you have this call to return to the sources precisely to deepen our understanding of why it is that we do the things that we do. I think what we are doing now is really what we are called to do, which is return to the sources, to the scriptures, to the fathers, to understand something of the ascetic life, its importance is how it is essential and part of the fabric of our Christian identity. And so that we might take it up fully. And I do think that there has been irreparable damage with the loss of the ascetical life. And I think we see it across the board, you know, in terms of its effect upon Christian men and women. And we see it in a disastrous way within the priesthood. You know, a breakdown of the ascetical life among those, especially among the Western clergy, you know, who are, you know, embrace this life, celibate lifestyle. And, you know, where there is this, you know, deep need for the ascetic life to be rooted in, in prayer, uh, to order the passions, to have fasting as a regular part of one's life. And for years and years, you know, there's a movement away from these practices and in seminaries, you would hear nothing said about them. So what do you think is going to emerge other than, you know, these, you know, horrendous aberrations of what the life is supposed to look like? In fact, in fact, it becomes something demonic. And, you know, it's when we read in the Fathers, especially the Philokalia, that, you know, there is no theology except that which arises out of this experiential knowledge of God. You know, this comprehension in, in and through faith and through a heart that has been purified through the ascetical life that one comes to know and to see the truths that God has revealed to us. And, you know, the moment that we move away from that, that faith diminishes and purity of heart is lost, then what we are involved in is demonic theology, they tell us. That our vision of the truth, our vision of God, of the human person, becomes so distorted 
that it, we are drawn in, into evil. We're drawn into greater and greater darkness. We, and we've seen it. And we see in our culture, the breakdown of our capacity to, uh, to understand reality itself. And so we, we live in a culture that has become lost and that culture has formed and permeated, you know, the, the, the life of the faithful who are every bit as immersed in it as everybody, as anyone else. And so there has to be this revolution that takes place. And I think we talked, you know, this was the whole purpose of last night, you know, talking about asceticism and, you know, that we allow ourselves to undergo this internal revolution uh, you know, by immersing ourselves in the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, you know, the, the wisdom of the cross, all of these things sort of form and fashion our view of what it is to be a human being, what it is to be faith, faithful, what it is to love and give ourselves in love. And, you know, I think it was Fulton Sheen that said, you know, when people reject Christianity, most, most often they're not rejecting Christianity. They're rejecting a simulation of it and a, of a distorted simulation of it. And so one could understand and hardly, you know, hold them at fault for rejecting it because we aren't bearing witness to the truth by the way that we, we live our lives. And so, you know, that was a long-winded response to your question, but I don't think it just started in the 1960s. I think it's been going on for a long time. And, you know, one could point back to the Enlightenment even earlier, I think, in terms of a shifting there and, the, you know, the view of the human person and uh, that all plays into it. But most, you know, I think simply put, we see uh, the diminishment of faith, the, the working of the evil one, you know, that these, are, you know, once you stop engaging in the spiritual battle, then that battle is lost. There's no static position in the spiritual life. We're either in, you know, in the midst of the fray, we're fighting the good fight of faith, or we're being dragged in the darkness. Wayne. Oh, you have to, there you go. Yeah, I grew up in the 60s and um, I remember- uh, So you're the fault. You're the okay, yeah, <laughs> and I remember that the, the pre-Vatican and the Vatican days. Oh, can you hear me? Yeah, I remember the pre-Vatican and the Vatican days. Yeah, at that time, I, I you know, as a teenager, I, I had a strong interest in, in religion. And prior to, to the Vatican II, um, everything was very prescribed. Mm-hmm. It was it was laid out to you. You can fast on these days. You can read certain books. You can't read certain books. Certain movies you could see. There was the you know the forbidden books, etc. After the Vatican, I remember um, sort of what, what Eric was saying about uh, and I. But when um, they said, you, "Well, uh, so he has one he hold on for one Wayne. Wayne, hold on for one second. Alice, can you mute yourself? Yeah. There. Okay. So. Uh, I remember, if memory serves, serves me correct, I, when they said that, uh, you know, eating meat on Friday was, it, was, it wasn't out of the, you, you could, it was, you said you could do it, but it wasn't out of the pain of sin. Because I remember, like, when you, if you did eat meat on Friday, well, you have to confess that. Um, um, and the priest, the bishop said, well, it's up to you now. You, 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 are, you are adults. 
and we'll leave that those kinds of things up to you when you want to do that or not. And I think that like perhaps what you're saying too, Father, but people took that. Well, I'm just do. I'm going to do what I want, and and um, and and that 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 uh, discipline got lost. All right. I don't know if that makes sense or not. Like in Eastern churches, that, that discipline is still there. For, for example, for us, like today was a, was the first day of Lent, and it's actually um, vegan. Like you you can you can't eat meat or you can't eat don't eat any um, dairy products, etc. So that the uh, that discipline is still there, right? Um, perhaps not under the pain of sin, but but um, it's still encouraged, right? But I, I just remember that the, the whole pre-Vatican and post-Vatican, everything was very very uh, laid out, and then after the Vatican II, everything's kind of you know sense got thrown out the window, and and uh, everything became well, it went the other way, right? If that makes any sense, Father? Yeah, it does, and you know I think. You know, there's a danger when things are overly programmatic or become habitual and they are just embrace performa or practice performa. And uh, because then we lose sight of, again, of the meaning of doing it. We begin to carry it out simply as an external discipline, but not really having it form the mind and the heart and not increase the desire for God, for prayer, or aid us in any way in terms of our struggle with the passions. But if we uh, sort of tell people, okay, it's up to you, you have this freedom to choose, but don't offer any counsel or guidance, uh, then, you know, on some way we are failing them, uh, that we uh, are, are not presenting people with the, the treasure house that we have of, of wisdom that comes from the live faith uh, across the centuries. And uh, I've often mentioned this in, in groups that, you know, a starving man has no sense of taste. And so he will grab what's at hand and consume it uh, because of he's hungry, he's starving. And, uh, but it's not necessarily going to be nourishing. And, you know, if we are created in the image and likeness of God, if we've been created for him, then there's always going to be this longing that we have for God within our hearts. And so inevitably, a person is going to be drawn to things to try uh, to fill that, that place that only God can fill. And so people will turn to the various things within the world and or they'll turn to other spiritual practices. You know, we, people brought up in the past you know, people gravitating to Eastern mysticism, not Eastern Christian, but, you know, various, you know, forms of practices and uh, that maybe even share some similarities to what we find within our own tradition, but they've never been exposed to. And so they begin to gravitate to those things that offer some promise of nourishment. And, uh, and so, we really want to avoid both things, you know, where again, everybody's doing it or everything is so prescribed, but there's a clear, you know, loss of a sense of the meaning of it. You know, there was that scene in the movie, The, the Godfather, that was, I remember, I don't remember because I think I was pretty young when it came out, but I think it was pretty jarring to individuals where uh, Michael, right, is the son, he's having one of his children baptized while at the same time, He's having his enemies whacked, you know, knocked off. 
And, you know, so he's participating in the baptism of his son. And yet, you know, on this very deep level, his, his, his heart has been dark, darkened and deformed. And, you know, that's the most extreme example that I could come up with, you know, in the sense of, you know, this uh, practice of the faith completely disconnected from the meaning of it. But, you know, are we really all that far from it? You know, I've, I've read a lot of studies, but also, you know, through experience that a lot of people have their children baptized and that is it. You know, it's sort of like a rite of passage or something that they, they do, you know, because it's still a part of their family tradition. But in terms of any in education or formation in the faith, often that's the end of it. In terms of going, the whole family going to church, uh, that religion has become irrelevant in the fa family life and within the culture. And so how is it that we, you know, uh, allow that to come back to life? And the only way is through personal conversion, repentance, this r radical turning of the mind and the heart back to God. And, you know, in our culture, our day and age, that's going to be difficult. And this is one of the things that we talked about last night. How do we do that in modern society? You know, and even when we hear within the scriptures that, you know, those who love the world are enmity with God. And so what does that say about our own day in a culture that almost in every arena has turned away from God and sort of draws people into a place where the passions are being stimulated and uh, are taking greater and greater root. And we no longer have the capacity because the consciences, our consciences become so coarsened that they, they don't rebuke us in the face of the very things that would lead us away from God. How do we, you know, how do we enliven within our own hearts again, that desire, desire for God? And so this is what we tried to touch upon last night. If you weren't able to join us, it's available by podcast. And I think, you know, this is the reason that we spend these years with this slow reading of the fathers, you know, in order that it might become deeply rooted within our hearts. What is our life to look like? What is a life shaped by the gospel and shaped by the love of Christ, the cross, uh, to look like? in our world and what will that mean for us? And I think part of the reason that we rationalize so often is because we're afraid of that. You know, that we've worked so hard for generation after generation to fit in and to be unidentifiable that now to be identified as a Christian is a terrifying thing because you make yourself peculiar and that, you know, the object of people's contempt and scorn and mockery and that's what we have to be prepared for. And if in some way we fit into nicely, then I think that's where we have to be asking ourselves what's wrong with us. You know, if we're loved and embraced by everyone. You know, how can we read the letter of James, which we've been reading all these past weeks, or how can we hear about Paul's life and being stoned and lashed, you know, and and imprisoned and, you know, look at our lives and say, oh, yeah, that I, I could see myself in Paul. <laughs> so, okay, where are we at? Gee, we're, it, you know, it's already 830. That's sort of surprising to me. The hour flies by. 
so we'll, we'll wrap things up there tonight. And, uh, you know, these readings, I think, are going to be perfect for the beginning of Lent. As I mentioned in the next hypothesis, we're moving on to obedience. And uh, again, you know, another central and important thing for us to meditate upon. And then also this Wednesday, if you haven't already heard, we're finishing up with St. Theophan and his letters to Anastasia. And so March 9th, we're starting with the reading of St. John Climacus's Ladder of Divine Ascent. And so again, that's March 9th. And uh, so get your books ready. And uh, I'm really, I can't tell you how happy I am that we're starting Climacus during the during the Lenten season. It's sort of the perfect opportunity for us to take it up. And we'll probably finish up two Lents from now. So we'll we'll be able to have a perpetual Lent here for, for a couple of years. Okay. But thank you all. And again, for all your wonderful comments and questions. And I've been watching in the chat too. Thank you for everybody, everything that you all said. And uh, in particular, I think it was, um, let's see his name up here now. I think it was Forrest who, uh, gave a little synopsis of what we were talking about there earlier, which you might want to go back and read. But th that'll be a part of the podcast as well. Okay, so why don't we close, as always, with the Our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Lord God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Father, I'm just wondering if I could say something more serious. I'm wondering um, with the situation in uh, Ukraine, Yes. That if people could say say extra prayers, we're very tenuous situation right now. And definitely, uh, we've been praying about it here I, too. I know in our church, that mm -hmm. one of the things the father said was uh, pray, pray, pray. Definitely. So I think it's important that uh, we all do that. Very good. Thank you. You're welcome. For everyone who has the the um, oh my goodness, I can't even remember the name of the prayer book, but. Uh, there's that paraclesis to the Theotokos in a time of danger. The publican? Yeah, publican the publican prayer, prayer book. book. Mm -hmm. And yeah. um, that's quite a beautiful one. Um, maybe something good for Ash Wednesday, too, yes. since we've been asked to dedicate that. But um, the reason I turned on my mic was I got a couple people asking me. And so I just thought I'd say it here that the lecture on uh, the aesthetic Podvig from last night was, in fact, recorded and it is already published on the Philokalia podcast channel. So um, so there you go. It's there. You can listen to it. It's a little bit long. Ah, who cares? <laughs> so prepare yourselves. <laughs> <laughs> it's the ascetic podvig. That's right. <laughs> That's right. The test of endurance right at the beginning of Lent. Okay. Have a wonderful night, everybody. You Great. too, Father. Yeah. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father David. Bye, Mom. <laughs>